the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. Now, this show is in two parts, not equal parts by any means. The first, well, part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The other part of the show, we interview guests, personalities. Tonight we have on one of our my favorite historians, Roger McGrath, Professor Roger McGrath, and he's going to be talking about reparations. And financially, we're, we're talking to George Schultz, who's going to be talking about charitable giving and Ave Maria funds and, and so forth. But let's try to get at least one estate planning question in. Okay. Beth? Mr. Connors, how many witnesses do you need for a will, and does it have to be notarized? Can the witnesses be one of the executors, an alternate, successor, or one of the beneficiaries? Let's get it. The, the will has to be witnessed by two people. The will has to be in writing. You know, you can't do it by videotape or DVD or something like that in and of itself. There has to be a writing. It has to be witnessed by two people. It does not necessarily have to be notarized. The signatures of the witnesses should be notarized, but if it's not, it's still a will. The reason we notarize the signatures of the witnesses is something happens to the witnesses. We have a a sworn statement that they witnessed that will on that day, and it would make it easier to get the will through probate. And of course, if nobody contests the will, the witnesses don't have to show up and testify. The witnesses cannot be a beneficiary to the will. You know, and there are all sorts of exceptions. If it's an only child and the only child's not getting everything, I guess he could be a witness to the will. He can be a witness to the will. But for the most part, as a general rule, the witnesses to the will should not be beneficiaries. They should be not be family members who are named in the will or are not named in the will but are still family members that may be next of kin by law. The executor can witness the will. Now, the executor is the person you choose to wrap up your legal, financial, business matters after you're gone. And the executor can witness the will. But remember, again, the, the witness, if it's an executor, should not be a beneficiary. 90, 95% of the time, your executor is going to be a beneficiary of a will. So if you have three kids and you want to name one child as executor, you would say, I leave everything in three equal shares. I name my son as executor. He can't witness the will. At the same time, let's say you're nominating your brother is executor and you're leaving it to your nephews and nieces, well, then your brother could 
could be a witness to the will. But then again, what's his place if you had no will and will he cooperate and things like that? So for the most part, we want a, a witness to the will to be disinterested. But an executor technically can witness a will. And, you know, sometimes this is a problem we get with people today. They, you know, print up wills off the Internet, and it's not hard, but at the same time, it's not as easy as some people think. Some people think I print a form off the Internet, I get it witnessed, I get it notarized, and that's it. Well, there might be a clause in there that it's not properly filled out. You know, I've seen it sometimes where they get the signatures of the witnesses notarized, but the witnesses didn't witness the will in the proper place. And that obviously could cause a problem, at the very least a major delay, and maybe the will won't go through probate. And if the witnesses don't cooperate when the time comes, that will may not get through probate. So, you know, like, your will, you're covering all the assets in your name alone when you pass away through your will. If you're going to do it, get it done right. Again, if you want to attend one of our seminars, we're going to give the times and, and places at the end. We're going to be in Staten Island and Manhattan the end of June, and we're going to be in Brooklyn the end of July. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. All righty, folks. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you, so come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on Tuesday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now, our next guest is George Swartz, and he's been on the show before. He's the CEO of Schwartz Investment Council, and we talked about Ave Maria funds. But he has a book on right out right now, In God We Trust. Welcome to the show, George. Glad to be with you, Michael. In God We Trust. What's the book about? Well, the book is about uh, the Ave Maria Mutual Funds. I wrote a book about seven or eight years ago called uh, Good Returns, and it was, a, it was about the history and operations of the Ave Maria Mutual Funds, which my firm manages. 
And this book set out to be a update on that, or a rewrite of it, if you will. And uh, in the process of writing, my son Bob, who is one of my colleagues here at my firm, suggested that I expand the topic to include a discussion of capitalism versus socialism. As uh, you and your listeners know, Michael, uh, socialism has become, uh, oddly, a, uh, a very popular system or system of government among uh, academics and students and uh, the uh, the hard left of the Democrat Party. So anyways, the book explores that and uh, explains in very simple ways why socialism can't work, has never worked, will not work to the uh, to benefit the uh, members of that of, of any society in the how capitalism on the other hand uh, uh, as practiced in the United States anyways is uh, is a winner and uh, has done so much good for so many people and uh, um, of course being a capitalist myself running these Ave Maria mutual funds my staff and I are uh, very much in favor of capitalism and democracy, and um, the book explains why, in very simple terms, why capitalism and democracy go together and increase uh, prosperity for everyone in the society, increases uh, freedom of association, freedom of religion, um, all the things that uh, socialist uh, socialism doesn't do. Let me ask you something. What do you think is the appeal of socialism right now? Why are so many young people, they're enamored by socialism? It, it's amazing, Michael. It's just uh, mind-boggling. Uh, I think part of it goes to the uh, the education they're getting, or lack of education they're getting at uh, so many secular universities and colleges. Um, a lot of the professors at these institutions are leftists. And I think many of them are pot-smoking hippies from the 60s and 70s, actually, that moved into uh, professorships at these secular colleges, and uh, they're they're leftists. And uh, so they spew this nonsense about uh, equality and uh, and everyone being equal and nobody should be richer than anybody else, and uh, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. Of course, and Bernie Sanders has really picked up on that, who is an avowed socialist. I just read recently that uh, Bernie Sanders and... On, on his honeymoon, on one of his previous marriages, uh, he and his wife at the time uh, took a honeymoon in the Soviet Union, which uh, is kind of interesting. But uh, <clears throat> students of history know um, that under socialism, the poor are always worse off in the end. Corruption always ensues. Crime increases. Poverty increases. Of course, there's no incentives to produce. Incentives don't exist under a socialist system. So hopelessness and despair always increase. And uh, capitalism, on the other hand, um, is a very uh, different entity, and it and it works with uh, with great success. Again, at least as practiced in the U.S. under capitalism and democracy, uh, opportunities increase for the masses. Jobs increase, incentives to produce exist, productivity of the citizens increases, savings and investments increase, prosperity increases. You get a higher standard of living in the whole society. Happiness increases, which uh, is an outgrowth of the success of 
of uh, capitalism and the wealth creation. And another thing that you get in a capitalist system is uh, the creation of foundations and endowments. The socialists don't want to talk about that, but there's an enormous amount of social good that's been done by foundations and endowments uh, throughout the country, throughout the world, uh, all because of the productive aspects of capitalism. Your book, what basically is, is the outline of the book? What, what's the start of it? What, what's the first premise and how does it end? Okay, the book is about, uh, again, started out being about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds, which my firm manages. The Ave Maria Mutual Funds are uh, funds that uh, take a pro-life and pro-family approach to investing. That is, we don't invest in companies that uh, promote abortion and pornography. Um, so we have a Catholic advisory board that sets the criteria for what we should not invest in. And we as portfolio managers and analysts at my firm um, follow the guidelines established by our Catholic advisory board. I'm sure some of your listeners, or maybe all your listeners, know some of the people on our Catholic advisory board. They include uh, Robbie George, Dr. Robert George from Princeton University, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn from um, uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, Lou Holtz, Coach Lou Holtz, the former head football coach at Notre Dame, uh, my friend Larry Kudlow, who is the uh, National Economic Council Director for uh, the White House. Uh, we have Tom Monahan, who is the uh, founder of Domino's Pizza, and uh, several other prominent lay Catholics, in addition to uh, a couple of the clergy, including uh, Cardinal Adam Maida, the uh, retired uh, ordinary of uh, the Archdiocese of Detroit and the current Archbishop of Detroit, uh, um, Archbishop Alan Vigneron. So they set the guidelines as to what our analysts and portfolio managers should not invest in for these mutual funds, the Ave Maria mutual funds. And basically those screens screen out about 150 companies out of the Russell 3000. The Russell 3000 are the 3000 biggest companies in the country. So if you screen out 150 companies, that's only 5% of the companies that are out of consideration for our analysts and portfolio managers to consider. And uh, it still leaves 2,850 companies to choose from. And we've had great success in producing very good investment results for our, uh, for our shareholders in these funds. We have over 100,000 shareholders too in all 50 states, and um, they're not necessarily all Catholics, but I'll bet you most of them are, virtually all of them, but I'll assure you they're all pro-life and pro-family, and they don't want their money invested in companies through our mutual fund that uh, support abortion or pornography. Can you give me an example, give our audience an example, of a company which, at first blush, they may not think supports pornography, let's say, but does? where you would not invest in? Well, most of the Hollywood studios uh, have uh, divisions or subsidiaries that are engaged in uh, uh, pornography in one way or another. Um, the obvious ones would be like the print publications, Playboy or Hustler or some of those, uh, and there are some public companies that are engaged in uh, production of pornography. Most of the, uh, thankfully, most of the pornography industry, which is many billion dollar industry a year, most of the participants are private companies, which we don't invest in anyways. But uh, the big, the big uh, screen we have, the most impactful screen on our portfolios is the uh, abortion screen. 
and in that, we're screening out companies that uh, um, are public hospitals that perform abortions, insurance companies that pay for abortions, um, drug companies, pharmaceutical companies that make abortifacient drugs, and uh, companies engaged in embryonic stem cell research. In addition to that, we screen out companies that make corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. And that's a big screen, a very important screen. Um, as you well know, Michael, uh, Planned Parenthood is the biggest provider of abortions in the country. And um, there's a great movie out now, as you probably know, called Unplanned, which is about uh, Abby Hoffman, Abby Johnson, <laughs> Abby Johnson, who uh, was a uh, Planned Parenthood supervisor or director of a clinic and uh, made a conversion to the pro-life side. It's a great movie, by the way. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I, I understand it is. Where can we pick up In God We Trust, and where can we find out more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds? In God We Trust is available everywhere, um, online and uh, from uh, all the major bookstores, and uh, Amazon.com. Last week, by the way, it was the number one bestseller on Amazon in its category, which was uh, uh, good news. And the Yabe Maria Mutual Funds, of course, uh, you can contact our people at one uh, 866 Maria. That's a toll-free line, 866-AVE-MARIA, or go on our website, AveMariaFunds.com. AveMariaFunds.com. George, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Great to be with you, Michael. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F. Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org.
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few weeks ago, I was listening to Larry Elder, which you can hear on the same Salem Network here, and he had on a guest, Dr. Roger McGrath, who's been on this show before, and he's one of my favorite historians from TV years ago, uh, always a commentary on the West and other parts of American history. And welcome back to the show, Dr. McGrath. Hey, well, thank you for having me again, Mike. When I was listening to you and Larry Elder talk, you were talking about reparations, reparations that the descendants of slaves would get money. And of course, one of the questions is, where would they get the money from? And and some of you may not know this, but some Democratic presidential candidates are seriously talking about this. Well, yes, there's already uh, several of them. And in fact, uh, they're they're afraid that somebody else will outflank them with a more radical reparations uh, proposal. So they're really all lining up uh, behind reparations. But what I find most interesting uh, the reparations, as you uh, suggested, well, who is going to pay the reparations? And, of course, it's some kind of tacit assumption in all this that the U.S. government, meaning the U.S. taxpayer, uh, Mike and, and Raj and Chris and all these guys, are going to pay for it. And, well, wait, the U.S. government never enslaved anyone, and especially not uh, descendants of the uh, Civil War uh, soldiers who fought uh, a war that uh, cost uh, the Union up, upwards of 400,000, we've revised that upward uh, in, in more recent years, upward of 400,000 deaths and, and uh, several hundred thousand or, or more wounded and maimed. And yet the descendants of those people that freed, ultimately that's what the war did, I mean it wasn't initiated for that, but ultimately it freed uh, the slaves, and now descendants of those soldiers uh, who performed that heroic task, uh, now they're supposed to pay reparations to the people freed by those soldiers, you know, and they didn't own them, you know. It's like the U.S. government didn't own any slaves, uh, so why should the U.S. government be responsible for paying these reparations? Yeah, and I think one of the points you made, the U.S. government, I mean, Slavery was only around for 80 plus years as far as the U.S. government was concerned because the United States didn't come into existence until the the United States government didn't come into existence until the 1780s. Yeah, I mean, technically 1788 when enough states, three quarters of the states, not states then, but uh, former colonies had ratified the in special ratifying conventions, the Constitution, and then it took effect, and that was 1788. In 1865, slavery was ended, so that's 77 years. But again, the U.S. government, uh, this is in a private institution inherited uh, by the U.S. government, uh, established when we were British colonies. And it was established, by the way, the father of American slavery is a black man, Anthony Johnson. And uh, he set the precedent for slavery in the South, because up until uh, he had uh, one of his, through a court case, one of his indentured servants declared a servant for life, a a slave, uh, we had indentured servitude in the colonies, and it was Anthony Johnson one of his uh, slaves, John Casser, who wanted to work for a, a neighbor of Anthony Johnson's in Virginia, uh, and the neighbor supported him in, in suing for his his freedom because he said, "Well, my indenture is up, you know," uh, 
And uh, Anthony Johnson said, well, no, you never signed a contract of indenture. Um, and uh, and so they took it. He was been a slave in Africa. He said, now you're a slave here in Virginia. And it went through a court case, 1654, the court declared uh, in favor of Anthony Johnson. So Johnson prevailed. And this, uh, this John Kasser re- remained a slave, setting the legal precedence for slavery in America. So actually the father of American slavery is this black man. Some people may have no idea when you're talking about indentured servitude. What was that? Well, uh, commonly, uh, uh, Europeans would come in, this particularly, uh, particularly the Irish, uh, secondarily English and, and Germans, but would come to the colonies as indentured servants. And it was expensive to come here to the colonies unless you immigrated as a, a large group, uh, pilgrims or later the Puritans did or something. And so uh, if you came on your own, well, how do you finance the voyage and the food and the clothing and everything you need to come to America? So they would sign, uh, these potential immigrants would sign contracts of indenture uh, meaning for uh, four or up to seven years, uh, they were essentially a slave, white slavery. Uh, they were owned and they were sold at auction uh, when they got here on the on the docks. And then somebody had them, lock, stock, and barrel, had their body for uh, four to uh, seven years. And uh, great numbers of what we think of colonists actually came here as in, indentured servants. And uh, they weren't, uh, treatment varied greatly, but they weren't necessarily treated very well because the owner of them uh, thought, well, I only have them for four years or seven years. You know, after that, they're gone. Where later when slavery uh, was established, black slavery, well, you had them for life. And so you tended to, for no other reason than economic reasons, you tended to take care of that property. And the indentured servants were uh, generally treated uh, very poorly, and many of them died before their uh, indenture time of indenture uh, expired. To some extent, you're talking about the descendants of African slaves, but you also mentioned, like, in some respects, the Irish immigrants at that time were treated more poorly. Oh, yes, far more, because uh, nobody nobody owned them. I mean, it's ironic to say that. I mean, this uh, evil, despicable institution of slavery, yet it protected just because of the very value of a slave. I mean, a good, young, healthy field hand in 1850 went for about $2,000, like a quarter of a million in today's money. And so you didn't want that good, uh, healthy uh, field hand to die in uh, some kind of arduous or dangerous uh, work. And so instead, you hired Irish. And the Irish uh, came over some kind, some kind of some contractor, brought them over, and then they owed the contractor, you know, so many years of, of work. But all throughout the South, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, uh, the Irish did the most dangerous work, uh, the most arduous work, the most exhausting work, uh, because if they were injured or died, nobody lost anything. Uh, and this is again and again, your Central Park there in New York City. Frederick Law Olmsted was the architect of Central Park. Well, he traveled throughout the South, uh, and he wrote it in a journal about his, and this was right on the eve of the Civil War, 1860. And again and again, he saw these jobs being done by Irish, and he just, he was a northerner, and he assumed all this work was done by black slaves in the the South. 
And, and he couldn't believe it, especially this one place on a landing on the Alabama River where bales of cotton were sent uh, hurtling down this chute. And uh, Irish uh, deckhands uh, were uh, catching these bales and stacking them on this barge in the Alabama River. And he, he asked the ship's captain, he said, well, why I thought, I assume black slaves are doing this work. Here you have all these... He's Irish doing this, and he's and the and the, the skipper replied to me. He said, "Well, if the if the patties get knocked overboard or get their backs broke, nobody loses anything. We would never use up uh, uh, good uh, uh, slaves in, in in with this kind of uh, this kind of labor." Uh, and a, a great example of this uh, was in the 1830s. The New Basin Canal was uh, dug in uh, in. Uh, Louisiana, connecting Lake Pontchartrain with uh, New Orleans, kind of like a highway of commerce in those days, a canal. And the canal, uh, given the technology of the time, essentially dug with pickaxes and shovels, and this was in swamps and felling bald cypress, and these swamps were full of alligators and water moccasins, and and plus all the uh, typical diseases in a tropical area like that. And the the best estimates we have, and the Irish did it all, built the New Basin Canal. There's a monument down there to them. Uh, and something like 10, is the most conservative estimate, 10,000 Irishmen died there. And maybe up to 30,000 Irishmen died there. And we really don't know the exact numbers because they were just buried in mass graves, sometimes buried where they fell. Um, and And so this is stunning to people from the north, they didn't understand any of this. But again, it was simple economics, as that uh, ship captain later uh, said, well, hey, if the patties die or get their backs broke, nobody loses anything. Now, getting back to the main issue, is there any rational plan that's going, like who would get the benefits from the reparations? And of course, the Uh, taxpayers would pay it, but who would get the, how do you know whether somebody was a descendant of a slave or not? How do you know that somebody was not, even if they're African-American, that they didn't own slaves themselves? Well, this really gets fun because the devil is is certainly in the details, although I think the whole idea is is a, a bit insane to begin with because the government didn't own anybody. Um, yeah, just who would get reparations? Think about this. There was about a quarter million free blacks in the Old South, you know, right up in the antebellum decade, the 1850s. Now, out of that quarter million, you had more than 4,000 of them owned black slaves themselves. So you had black slave masters, over 4,000 of them. And they owned well over 20,000 black slaves. Now, what if you were a descendant from one of those black slave-holding families? Well, you're black today, so do you get reparations? And yet your family owns slaves. Uh, and in some areas, this wasn't a small percentage. Of the free blacks in New Orleans, 28% of the free blacks in New Orleans owned black slaves themselves. And this wasn't one or two. There were many black slaveholders in Louisiana that owned 50, 100, 150 slaves. And it also just wasn't uh, male blacks, but female blacks. And this is true throughout the South. There were women who owned 
uh, great numbers of slaves. Sometimes, of course, because their husband had died. They were a widow and they inherited the estate. Uh, but other times there were uh, black female entrepreneurs that uh, prospered and did well and uh, became slave owners and slave traders. Um, and, and by the way, uh, the blacks, the free blacks and, and some free blacks who owned slaves themselves were some of the most prominent slave traders. There was a, a black slave trader, Nate Butler, in, in Maryland. And he owned a farm, and he would lure blacks there, runaway blacks, because they think, oh, black man. He would lure them to the farm, and then he would either sell them downriver to Alabama or Mississippi, or he would uh, return them, depending on how large the reward was for the return. Uh, and he played this game for yeah, probably 20 years he was doing this, uh, and, and became very wealthy and prosperous because of it. What about Native Americans? Did any Native Americans own slaves? <laughs> well, again, here this talk about the devils and the details. Uh, one of the uh, one of the Democrat candidates who's advocating uh, for uh, repar- reparations is um, Elizabeth Warren. You know, and I was just trying to think. Uh, she possibly has. I don't think it's. <laughs> I don't think it's accurate, but possibly has one one thousandth uh, Cherokee in her. I mean, she told everybody she was Cherokee, and uh, so well, okay, let's let's say she is part Cherokee. Okay, well, the Cherokees owned over five thousand black slaves, uh, and uh, they were the probably the largest uh, slave owners of any uh, Indians in um, in the United States. The five civilized tribes generally were uh, large slaveholders, and the Cherokee were, were one of those that is put in that category. Also, the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole, they were all big. They owned thousands, and uh, uh, may, maybe up to 20,000 uh, black slaves were owned by these Indians. Um, and uh, uh, leading with the Cherokee. And when they were moved to Indian territory, uh, today's Oklahoma, at least eastern Oklahoma, uh, they dragged their slaves with them. And the Cherokee, in in fact, you talk about something that's been admitted from uh, history, the Trail of Tears. Now, everybody's heard about the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears. And actually, it was only part of the Cherokee. Other Cherokee had gone earlier, and it was a, a much better movement west. But these... His last Cherokee to go, it's known as the Trail of Tears. But they don't tell you. Those Cherokee dragged over 2,000 black slaves with them on the Trail of Tears. And I always ask everybody, did you see that when you watched that documentary about the uh, Trail of Tears? Well, no. And you don't see in uh, in chains and coffles and uh, over 2,000 black slaves on that Trail of Tears. So, yeah, the Indians, and that's why they sided with the Confederacy when the Civil War erupted. Uh, and you can see all these proclamations by them. And, of course, they were they were big slaveholders, and they served in the Confederate Army. Uh, and, in fact, uh, some were very prominent officers in the Confederate Army. Stan Waddy uh, rose to be a brigadier general. And, in fact, he was the last 
Confederate general to surrender his his troops. And he didn't surrender until June 1865, when the formal surrender, we know Appomattox, April 1865. Well, Stan Waddy and his troops uh, didn't uh, surrender until June. Now, now of course, uh, there was a Confederate general who didn't surrender at all, went off to South, South America, but that's something else again. But yeah, so here in this Indian, and they fought from the very early days of the, the Civil War, uh, right down through the uh, through the surrender. So they were big uh, big slave owners in uh, in the Old South, uh, and uh, some of them very wealthy and had large plantations. So it appears that history is a little bit more complicated than some people think. Well, far more, and especially on this. Uh, on this issue of of uh, slavery, and I I think most of these candidates, and I, I may be overly generous to them, but um, I think they're simply ignorant of all this. Uh, I don't think they know all this history. I mean, I don't think they've even thought through the very uh, basic. Uh, presupposition in all their arguments that the U.S. government should be paying this. Of course, that's the deep pockets, but that means we, the taxpayers, are supposed to be responsible for that. And, uh, you know, there's just no rational uh, argument for that. So I don't even think they've thought that that part through. But they don't begin to know the history of, of slavery, the prominent black slaveholders and black slave traders, and the Indian enslavement of of blacks as well. Now, here's something about Elizabeth Warren. You know, she is arguing for reparations for American Indians also. Uh, so not just blacks, but American Indians also. So now you talk about the devils in the details. Well, so does that mean uh, somehow the taxpayer is supposed to give reparations to the uh, Cherokee, but then the Cherokee should be giving reparations to the blacks they enslaved as well. So, uh, and my wife's from the South. I think every other person has some Cherokee or Choctaw blood in them. Yeah, and so maybe they should get. Uh, <laughs> and I bet you they have. I bet you have considerably more than Elizabeth Warren. Uh, right, right. Possible one 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 thousandth. Um, uh, yeah, so that would uh, complicate it even uh, even even further. But yeah, this whole issue. Um, doesn't seem to be uh, very well thought out. But a- again, I-, I think essentially it's uh, simply some kind of vote-getting uh, attempt. Um, this is because they, I, I think they see that there's a, a certain drift of, of blacks uh, become disenchanted with the Democrat Party, um, and I, I think this this may be something they they think will. Uh, will stop that, uh, you know, small, but uh, nonetheless uh, significant. They normally count on about 90% of the black vote. I mean, what if it dropped to 80%? Uh, so this this could be uh, this could be critical. Um, so, I, you know, all these individuals uh, running um, for office among the uh, Democrats, I think it's there's some issue they've they've seized upon, and then all the others. I mean, what are there, 22 or three? I don't know. 
and all the others feel like they've gotten get get in line. Uh, in other words, to be outflanked by uh, uh, one of the candidates on this issue. But yeah, I'd really like to see them uh, how they would react when all the facts about uh, about slavery and just who owned slaves and uh, throughout uh, American history, the short time anyway, 77 years for the United States of America. I would love to see this really thoroughly uh, discussed. And, and of course, any of this uh, about the uh, far worse uh, treatment for uh, hired Irish uh, labor or any of these uh, black slaveholders and black slave traders, none of this is to uh, justify uh, what was, uh, you know, absolutely an evil and despicable institution that, uh, you know, thank God it was ended in 1865. But it is to say that people are generally terribly ignorant on the issue of, of slavery, and they haven't begun to think through the details of how uh, money would be uh, distributed. Why do you think history is forgotten today? People don't teach history as much. People don't seem to be aware of, uh, of history. I mean, even the, the basic things that we talked about, people don't seem to realize it. Well, unfortunately, history be, has become a, a vehicle for indoctrination. Um, I See, I, I use one of the books I would, I would use. Uh, I, I would use, if I ever, uh, when I was teaching U.S. History Survey courses, I did mostly upper division. But lower division U.S. history survey courses, I I would I would use books from all uh, perspectives, and uh, because I love that I love that intellectual ferment and and you know the university was supposed to be the free marketplace of ideas, and and uh, through the the 60s and into the 70s it still was by the 80s it was getting shut down. And I, I, had, I, I saw, you know, it surprised me at what was happening. It's one reason I liked the environment, because it was kind of like intellectual combat, you know. I, uh, and I went to college uh, as a freshman just to run track and play football. I didn't know you actually used your mind for something. You know, <laughs> remembering, you know, the 42 trap or 44 dive or something, you know. So uh, I, I found it, God, just incredibly exciting and and all sorts of ideas represented across the political spectrum and everything and unfortunately it's been shut down it's been shut down in the history books they get like you wouldn't want to bring out these facts about black slave owners um, or Indian slave owners you know you just wouldn't want to bring that out because it doesn't comport with the the uh, political agenda and the narrative that they want to spin I mean I had a a teaching assistant uh, I, I didn't know this, but I had six uh, teaching assistants in, in a particular, this is the mid-1980s at UCLA in a U.S. History Survey uh, uh, course and so you know, I started the course and here are the teaching assistants and and so it turns out three of the six were members of the RCP and I asked this other TA, I said, gee, what's the RCP and he, he looked at me like I'd just fallen off the turn of a truck and he said, well, it's the Revolutionary Communist Party, you know. <laughs> and I, I kind of chuckled and, and I said, gee, the regular Communist Party wasn't revolutionary enough. <laughs> and then and then I said, okay, so it's the Revolutionary What is that? And then he really started worrying about his professor, you know, and he said, well, that's the Maoist Communist, you know, and I thought, 
Ah, unbelievable. So uh, Soviet communism wasn't enough. It's got to be the Maoist version of it. So anyway, one of these uh, one of these uh, RCAs uh, during my lectures was getting more and more frustrated uh, week by week because uh, the TAs sit in the lectures and then they have sections that the students attend during the week as well with the TA running those sections. You know, so these big classes, three, four hundred kids in them, so you break them down into sections. The TAs take care of it. Okay, and. Uh, and this TA said, well, gee, you're really upset with uh, Professor McGrath here. He said, uh, do, you, uh, do you dispute any of his facts? And she replied to him, she said, well, no, but there's some facts students just shouldn't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's the world we have today. I'm sorry we're running out of time, but I really enjoyed the the interview, Dr. McGrath. Okay, and and thank, thank you for coming on. When you come up with another article, let us know, and uh, especially if you're talking about this political campaign. But thank you for okay. what you do for history. Okay, great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Take care. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Beth, Professor McGrath, I always used to like him when he was on the History Channel. Oh, I loved him. You know, oh, my, still do. Yeah, and I wonder whatever happened to those shows, because if you tune into the History Channel right now... Oh, don't... I, I, no, no, don't go to the History Channel. It's not the... You can't... We have to look it up on YouTube. We're going to have to see if he can track it down someplace. Right. Well, yeah, we should do that. But but, but I, always, I always liked Professor Roger McGrath's take on history <laughs> because he always seemed to have a good, a good handle of the facts, one, and a good perspective. And, you know, when we talk about reparations, you know, like it's it, when you talk about history, history is complicated. It's not it's always muddy. simple. And, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, does she have to pay reparations because she was part, she says she's part Cherokees and Cherokees own slaves. So she have to pay some of the reparations. <laughs> to some of the people, I mean, should she be responsible? It is. It's very complicated. You had, you had people from all stripes that went to war to end slavery. You have, um, I mean, everybody out there probably knows I was born in Louisiana. You had, um, 
you were a slave or you weren't a slave. Well, you had black people that owned slaves. You had Native Americans that owned slaves. It is very, very complicated. Um, and you had white Southerners who were abolitionists. Yeah, that's my my ancestors got in trouble for that. But you believed in slavery. You didn't believe in slavery. Right. Um, you know, I know some people find that hard to believe that somebody born in the South pre-Civil War could be an abolitionist. But it's the same thing. You don't have a lot of conservatives in New York, but they're still here. You didn't have a lot of abolitionists in the South, Mississippi, Louisiana, whatever, but they were still there. There's still people that believed believed in in what they... It was evil. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey. If you ever catch that movie, Free State of Jones, that's part of the history there. That's what it's about. And that's where my Mitchell ancestors were, right in that, that southern Mississippi area. The um no you you the the most annoying thing to me is when you have people that just paint these huge brushstrokes about history and um and I just think they don't know what they're talking about. No, yeah, well, I think if we listen to Professor McGrath, who does know what he's talking about, you have a good point on that. Now, obviously, again, we didn't speak a lot about estate planning and elder law tonight. And I know some of you love the interviews and some of you like to talk more about estate planning and elder law. But if you want to talk more about estate planning and elder law, email us some questions. There you go. You know? You could even, you know, you could even call the office and say, I have a question for the show. Why not? Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, email, I don't know how to do an email. Just call the office, ask for Mardochi and say, I have a question for the show. Let's just do that. That's easy. 718-238-6500. And if you have a question that you want me to ask on air, then call Mardochi at the office and just say, would you please ask them to read my question? And we will. Otherwise, you can email the question at askmyconnors at gmail.com. Askmyconnors at gmail.com. And we get to pretty much every question. Every once in a while, the the, the question's a little bit too much in the weeds, and we'll have try to have somebody call you back. Oh, it's too personal. Right. It may be too personal, or maybe there are too many facts that are not, and there are you know, a lot not, of, not there, printed in the email. There are a lot of questions that are just similar, too similar. So we, but we basically try to answer every everybody's question in, in nature. We also talked to George Schultz today, who manages Ave Maria Funds, which was started by our buddy... Tom Monahan. We love him. Yeah, and I mean, we a couple of weeks ago we were able to see Tom Monahan in person. We're at the uh, Legatus prayer meeting in in Washington, the Catholic prayer breakfast. It's a privilege just you know knowing the man and everything that he's done for religious values, for conservative values, old fashioned Catholic values. The man lives his life. He goes to mass every day. I think you can say, well, the one person's a great, he's a great person. He built an enormous business. He has given so many people jobs. And then with the money that he's made from his business, he started um, undergraduate school, law school, built a hospital. In, in Nicaragua. In Nicar- He's a great man. And it is, like you say, it is a privilege to know great people. And very humble man. You'd never know. You'd never know he'd done anything. I guess it's the close of the show. Again, if you if you want to attend any of our seminars, on June 25th, Tuesday, June 25th, we're in Midtown Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 11 o'clock, 3 p.m. Midtown Manhattan, the 3 West Club. On Thursday, June 27th, we're in Staten Island at Bocelli's Restaurant, 11 o'clock, 3 p.m., 7 p.m. 
if you, you want to attend any of the seminars to learn about estate planning and elder law, what's the best way to, to pass your house to the next generation? And, and again, we want to do it the right way because I see some people that they just put names on deeds and too many bad things can happen. Guy gives a house to his son or daughter and they got to pay three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in capital gains taxes after they're gone. That's what we try to avoid. We don't want your children to have to pay taxes. We want to save your assets from nursing home bills. And Mike's not telling you anything you you can't do legally. So don't think he's trying to cut corners or anything. This is just trying y'all trying to figure out the best way to do something. So our next set of seminars Tuesday, June 25th, Thursday, June 27th, Midtown Manhattan, Staten Island. We're going to be all over Brooklyn in July. So if you if you want to find out where, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. I think uh, Mr. Kincaid is telling us it's time to go home. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.